Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast by Oslo Business Forum and myself, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about artificial emotional intelligence and the mission to humanize technology. We are talking to Rana El Kaloubi, entrepreneur, machine learning scientist, co-founder and CEO of Affectiva, an MIT Media Lab spinoff on a mission to humanize technology. Rana led the innovation of the company's award-winning technology, which uses deep learning and massive amounts of data to analyze complex and nuanced emotions and cognitive states from face and voice. She was named Fortune's 40 Under 40 and Forbes America's Top 50 Women in Tech. Thank you so much for joining us, Rana. Thank you for having me. Let's jump straight into business. Artificial intelligence. It's on everyone's lips. It promises to help solve our global challenges, to make us smarter, potentially jobless, and even superhuman one day in the relatively near future. Your specialty is emotional artificial intelligence, and you've led the world's largest emotion data database, which has so far collected 5 billion facial frames from 8 million face videos from volunteers in 87 countries. I suspect a lot of listeners are not super familiar with this field, so let's start fundamentally simple. What is emotional artificial intelligence? Is it different from artificial intelligence like the one everyone's talking about, or is it a field within the field? It is a field within the field, and the and the best way I like to explain it is if you think about human intelligence, there's of course our IQ or our cognitive intelligence, and that's very important, but equally important is our emotional intelligence or our EQ. So people who have higher emotional intelligence tend to be more successful, they're more likable, they're more persuasive. And I think that that is true for AI, especially AI that is ingrained in our everyday lives and AI that interacts with people on a day-to-day basis. These AI systems need to not only have IQ, but they need to have EQ as well. And so we're on the mission to bring EQ to our technology and our devices and our AI systems. It's incredible. And as a machine learning scientist, uh, you've stated that you're on a mission to humanize technology. And uh, I've read many places, uh, you are truly a a pioneer in uh, artificial emotional intelligence. I know you have a personal story leading you to this field. Uh, You were studying abroad, finding how your computer, who you spent a lot of time with, could never truly assess and understand how you felt. And considering the amount of time that you spent with these devices, it sparked an idea. But in your own words, because that will be much better, how did you get interested in AI and emotional intelligence? Yeah, you know, as as you said, um, it all started with, uh, I grew up in the in, in the Middle East and in, in Egypt and, and around the Middle East. And then I had the opportunity to go to Cambridge University to do my doctorate degree in computer vision and machine learning. And it was my first kind of long experience studying abroad and being away from my family. So I get to Cambridge and, and I realized, yeah, I was spending more time with my device than I was with any other human being. But despite this intimacy, this computer knew very little about my emotional and mental state on a day-to-day basis. And that affected the effectiveness of our interaction. And so, uh, you know, I started asking questions like, what if my device could understand human emotions? What if it could interact with me just the way I interact with other people through conversation, through perception and through empathy? So that was over 20 years ago now. It set me on a path to uh, really define and pioneer the space of emotion AI and build algorithms that can in real time understand people's states, right? Like whether you're engaged, whether you're curious, happy, sad, distracted, tired. And and then there's a a lot of applications of this technology. 
Definitely. And, and we're going to get into the different applications of this technology later. But first of all, I think probably many people are wondering, but why should our devices know what we're feeling? I mean, why is it important that, you know, one thing is our computers that we work all day long at and our smartphones, obviously, uh, which I, I can understand. But then we have like our smart homes. Why does everything around us that is technology need to understand how we're feeling? Why do you think it's important? Because our emotions drive everything we do. It drives how we make decisions, whether they're big decisions or small decisions, how we learn, uh, whether we're productive or not, um, our health and well-being, our emotions affect how we communicate with one another. It's really it really cuts across every aspect of our of our day-to-day lives. And so you've got these devices that are immersed in our in our lives, whether it's at home or in the office or in your car, but it's completely oblivious to how you're feeling. And that makes for less effective transactions and less effective connections. Um, I mean, if you take Amazon Alexa, just to bring a very specific example, uh, you know, how many times have you asked Alexa to do something and it didn't get it right? And, and then you're frustrated. But of course, Alexa's completely oblivious to the fact that you're frustrated. So you become even more frustrated, right? Whereas if, if Alexa had a little bit of EQ, she could stop and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get that right, did I? Like, let me try again. And these examples, I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of scenarios where you could imagine how your car could understand that, you know, as a driver, you're tired, you're maybe drowsy, falling asleep, and then it could intervene in ways that could ensure that you are safe. You could imagine your device, your phone, every time you check your phone, that's an opportunity to build kind of an understanding of your health and well-being. So if you deviate from that baseline, your device can say, hmm, looks like you're especially stressed today. Do you want to go out for a walk? Do you want me to cancel this meeting you have at noon, right? And take the afternoon off. Like, you know, our technology can become kind of a companion that is helping us be more productive individuals, be healthier individuals, and be more connected to each other. That's so interesting to think about. Because so right now I'm looking into my computer, uh, thinking, you know, if my computer was able to read my voice and my face and understand kind of my my state of mind right now, what would it be telling me? Would it be seeing that I was kind of like tense or something? Would it ask me to sit in a different position because, you know, maybe that would lighten things up? I don't do. You, I mean, does this exist today? It doesn't exist today, but it could, right? Like all of the pieces of the the underlying technologies there, you've got cameras on our devices. We all have microphones and cameras on our devices and increasingly so. And and the, the algorithms, which is what we're building at Affectiva, is becoming, you know, a lot more robust. Like when we first started, our technology could understand three expressions only, right? Smile, eyebrow raise, and eyebrow furrow. Fast forward, you know, almost 10 years now, it has a repertoire of over 20 different facial expressions, seven different emotional states, cognitive states like drowsiness and fatigue um, and distraction and attention. We're even adding voice intonation into the mix. So, you know, we keep adding to it and it becomes more and more sophisticated. And so it, you know, I, I do think the enabling technology is there for us to bring these solutions to, to the world. Definitely. And, and I can see how, for example, this technology would be very helpful for people with uh, autism who struggle with understanding emotion. And actually, I did test your app, uh, and it was pretty accurate in reading how I felt. Uh, happy to say that I uh, was 99% joyful, uh, and, uh, and I think uh, 1% surprised. 
But then I was looking at it and then I was listening to this um, NPR podcast the other day where they were talking about how they're using this kind of technology in education, uh, trying to see how kids are following along in class and so on and how they've deployed a test project in China in which teachers and parents can monitor their children's focus in real time when they're at school learning. And I can definitely see the good and bad in this use case, and I guess in several others. And before we dive into like the consequences and privacy concerns regarding the technology, what are like some of the most common, and we've gone through a few of them, but I want to know like what are the most common use cases for this kind of technology today? And what do you think is going to be the most common in say five years time? Yeah, there's a couple of use cases that are, I would say are already on market, right? So first of all is the application of this technology to automotive. So, you know, we're starting to see systems that measure uh, driver impairment. Um, so cameras in the vehicles that can detect things like driver distraction, driver drowsiness, your level of drowsiness, whether you're holding a phone in your hand and what's that doing to your level of attention. Um, so there's a whole slew of applications around driver um, impairment and improving road safety. But then generalizing it, we're starting to see car companies become really interested in this idea of in-cabin sensing where it's not just about the driver, it's about the riders too. What is your riding experience? Like, how are you feeling? Can the car personalize that riding experience? Can it change the lighting or the music or even the content you're watching in the vehicle as a backseat passenger, for example? So so this is all starting to come on market. We're going to see more of it. And, you know, we're very proud to be driving a lot of that underlying uh, technology. That's one area. I'd say the other area is around helping brands and, and advertisers really understand the emotional connection they're building with their users and their consumers. Um, so we are partnered with a number. We, we basically, our technology is used by 25% of the global Fortune 500 companies around the world to test this emotional engagement their consumers have with their online video content. It could be an ad, it could be a TV show, it could be, you know, educational video content. But the idea is to really identify moment by moment, is this content resonating? Is this content offending, right? I mean, we keep seeing brands produce these ads that are quite offensive. And, you know, our technology can allow these brands to pre-test these ads on an audience and get the real subconscious emotional response and hopefully avoid some, some you know, some of this battle. <laughs> some of the pitfalls. I guess, I mean, a lot of advertising is probably, you know, I mean, subjective as well. So it's it might be hard to understand like exactly what's going to. But, you know, again, I can see if you do it for the target group that you want to that you want to reach, you can see pretty quickly if you're completely on or completely off. Uh, another one of the examples that you have mentioned in one of your talks that I, I watched uh, to research this interview, you mentioned a rather humoristic use case regarding how our smart fridges might be able to assess our stress level to perhaps prevent binge eating by uh, auto locking the fridge. Uh, do you think this is realistic? That's like the killer app, <laughs> right? I, I, it's definitely realistic. It's, uh, it would help me a lot. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I mean, I can only imagine, though, how this kind of technology could be used for lie detection. 
Uh, I don't know if you do that today, um, but in, in either way, I can see both uh, good and bad in many of the use cases that uh, you lay forward, uh, but they very much depend on how they're developed. And in your view, what do you think are the most important concerns in facial recognition tech? And do you believe, I mean, obviously you, you probably do because you work with this full time, but how do the benefits outweigh them and how should we be addressing the, the main concerns? Yeah, first of all, I think it's really important that we as thought leaders in this space acknowledge that they, that this is, you know, the technology itself may be neutral, but how we choose to deploy it can be either beneficial or can have a lot of potential for harm. And so I take a very strong stance about that. I'm very vocal about it. And I think it's important to advocate for these really transformative use cases like helping kids on the autism spectrum, but also not being naive and, and, and being clear that there are use cases where, you know, I think it, it, it violates people's trust. It violates our concepts of privacy and transparency. And, and I would put lie detection and surveillance in that bucket. Um, so you can imagine that there one use case of this technology is to deploy this in public spaces where people may or may not know that these cameras are are surveilling them, right? And you could imagine that the information could be used to target certain individuals. And I just, we have totally stayed away from that space. We've turned away millions and millions of dollars of funding uh, for the company and we will continue to do so. It's not in line with our core values, which, you know, when we first started the company, we identified a set of core values that act as our North Star. And these include things like data privacy, making sure that we always, always explicitly consent people, but also like make sure that there is, you know, bringing some balance to this power asymmetry. It's not okay for, you know, large organizations, be it, you know, tech companies or governments to have access to this data. And then me as an individual sharing this data, I get nothing in return for it. I, that is not okay. So I think we need to think through the value equation. Like what are people getting in return for sharing this data? Is it safer roads? Is it, you know, sometimes it's monetary returns, you know, you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get paid to share my responses to this video content. And I just think we need to be very thoughtful and transparent and very clear like who's collecting the data? Where is this data being stored? How is it going to be used? And sometimes that's very opaque to, to an end user. And I, and I actually, my prediction for 2020 is that that's not going to be acceptable anymore, which is a good thing. Oh, definitely. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that your <laughs> ethics are in check. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously we, we talk about this and I start thinking about China and how they're using facial recognition technology all over their cities to identify individuals uh, jaywalking, for example, uh, which to me, you know, kind of seems a little bit crazy. Uh, I assume you kind of have the same thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, actually, I want to come back to the example on education because I think it has huge potential to transform and democratize access to education. So I, you know, I grew up in the Middle East where not everybody has access to an amazing teacher and, you know, a classroom experience. So using technology and online learning systems could be very powerful in terms of giving kids access to education. But the problem is these online learning systems are oblivious to the student's level of engagement and readiness to learn. But if you use emotion AI, then the system can understand if the kid is confused. Are they bored to death? 
<laughs> you know, are they are they engaged? And and it can adapt and personalize the learning experience in real time, just the way an awesome teacher would do. Now that is very very different than using it as a monitor as a monitoring system to punish kids who aren't paying attention. Like I'm not okay with that use of it. So again, it comes back to you know it's the same core technology, but how are you crafting the application and who's benefiting from it? Right? It has to really be aligned with the end user in this case it's the learner and and that's just a matter of the of how we design develop and deploy these systems and i i I advocate for a human-centric approach to doing so yeah and actually that goes very well into the next question which is uh your perspective on bias and data sets uh because we were talking about who develops it but it's also about the data sets used to develop it so I, i frequently do talks on how diversity is crucial in technology and i cite a research project by mit finding that one of the most uh, frequently used data sets to train these facial recognition algorithms consists of 75% male, 80% white faces, and how that results in facial recognition systems by Microsoft and Google and Facebook, et cetera, to accurately identify a white male 99% of the time, while only 65% of the time when presented with a woman of color. So why is it so incredibly important to balance these data sets with diversity? And how do you work with preventing bias yourself at Affectiva? Yeah, that is a great, that's a great question. Um, You're absolutely right. Like if we're not thoughtful and purposeful about how we, the data we're using to train these algorithms, we are accidentally building bias into these systems that are going to be deployed at at scale worldwide, right? That's, and that's a real problem. And as a, as a leader of an AI company in this space, this is something that is really top priority for us. The way we tackle this is we think about mitigating bias across the machine learning pipeline. It all starts with the data. As I said, we have data from 87 countries around the world. So it's very ethnically diverse. It's age diverse. We have people who are you know, wearing glasses. They have facial beards, no beards, facial masks, hair bangs, the hijab, you know, women wearing the hijab. It's like so important that the data is representative of all people. And then so once the data is very diverse that way, it's not enough. The way we sample the data for the machine learning algorithm also has to be balanced. So you have to have equal number of males and females, equal number of people from different ethnic groups, and so on. And so again, the the sampling of the data is really critical. And then how you validate the accuracy is also super important. So um, when I was a PhD student 20 years ago, you just reported one accuracy score. So you said, yeah, like, you know, my emotion classifier, my my smile classifier is 99% accurate. Well, accurate on who, right? So now when we evaluate accuracy, we break down the accuracy scores by population. So we can look at the accuracy of specific algorithms by gender, you know, by skin color, by age group. And that's the only way we can uncover if there is bias in these algorithms. And again, I'm very vocal that companies need to do that and be transparent about these results, you know, with with their customers and their clients. And why don't they do that today? Because we know that it's not the case that they all have, you know, these diverse and balanced data sets. Why is it that they don't? I think it goes back to the diversity of the team that's designing these algorithms. So if your team is very homogeneous, it's, you know, middle-aged white guys designing these algorithms, they're not going to think that it's missing hijabi women. It's just not going to even occur to them. Whereas our team is very diverse, it's very international, and it's actually also diverse 
age-wise. Like we have internship programs where we pull in high school kids because we want their perspective around the table. And then there's fewer blind spots, right? Like because we have these diverse perspectives around the table, people chime in and they're like, oh, I haven't seen anybody look you know, who looks like me in this data set, like, what's up with that? And and then we can fix it. So it goes back to your, you know, how you started all of this. It is so crucial that, again, as thought leaders in, in AI, that we prioritize diversity and, and inclusion uh, in how we think about these systems. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to work for all of us. Exactly. Uh, couldn't be more in agreement with you. Finally, with everything happening in the world of technology and the incredible amounts of data generated every single minute, I mean, compared to the past, it's, it's mind-blowing, fueling the development of these technologies that we've uh, discussed. What is your prediction for... I guess, artificial intelligence as a whole for the next 10 years? It's a big question. I know. It is a big question. Um, I think as a society, we're, we're having a moment of reckoning and we are acknowledging that AI can be very powerful, but, but that we have to take a stance as a society around how are we going to build it and for what. Um, so I go back to this idea of human centric and putting the human first before the artificial. Um, I, I really do think in, in our conversations about AI, it is less about the artificial part of it and it's more about the human part of it. Like what is AI doing for us? What do we want it to do for us? And how do we ensure that it's human centric in the way we design, develop and deploy it? And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. You know, my belief is that human machine inter interaction is going to very much mirror human to human interactions. And I think that that's going to be very powerful. Like finally, technology will interact with us on our own terms through our own language of communication, which is very much, you know, conversational and perceptual and nonverbal. Um, and I think that's going to be really exciting. Definitely. So I, I uh, have uh, some background from Singularity University, and uh, a lot of people are talking about, you know, the potential and consequence of uh, superhuman or super, super general intelligence where, you know, these machines are just a billion times smarter than every human intelligence on Earth combined. What are your thoughts on all of this controversy? I mean, do you think it at all is realistic to reach the stage of superhuman general intelligence embodied by machines? Or is this, you know, not really something that we need to be discussing or worrying about? You know, as somebody on the ground who's building this, I think we are many, many, many years away from building AGI. I am actually, frankly, more concerned about building bias into our systems that are just going to perpetuate the bias that exists in society at scale than, than I am concerned with a robot that's going to take humanity on, right? Like, totally <laughs> take. Yeah. Having, having said that, I also think my lens on all of this is that it's a partnership. It's not a, it's not a war against AI. AI is a tool. We're building it. We get to define what it does for us. And I really think of it as a human machine partnership to empower us to do more things and do things better. Um, even, even, even something like emotional intelligence, I think emotion AI has the potential to augment our EQ and improve our EQ in the digital universe so that we're more empathetic when we're communicating online, for example. So I really, I really think it's complementary. It's not human versus machine. It's human plus machine. I really like that you have an optimistic view on the future of AI and technology, and I share that with you. Finally, I know that you have a new book available for pre-order already. I think it's going to be shipped in April 2020, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, called Girl Decoded. Tell me, what's this book about? 
So this book is about my personal journey and the juxtaposition of emotion AI. So, you know, what led me to creating artificial emotional intelligence and my journey from the Middle East to Cambridge University for my PhD and then eventually ending up in Boston, uh, you know, first at MIT and then starting Affectiva. And so this journey from East to West, from academia to industry, from being a nice Egyptian girl to being a CEO of a, of a venture-backed AI company and an entrepreneur and a thought leader. And I hope it inspires many people around the world and gets people excited about the use cases and applications of Emotion AI. Uh, I think you will also be a good role model just in yourself of writing that book. So thank you for doing that because it is very inspiring to see women being pioneers in this field because uh, you know that there are way too few. Finally, uh, before we uh, let you go, uh, I have three quick questions. If you could give your 20-year-old self a piece of advice, what would that be? Uh, have more confidence in me. Just believe in me. Yeah. I, uh, I think a lot of uh, young girls should hear that and, and young boys. Uh, what's your favorite podcast or book or anything that you would like to recommend? Ooh, my favorite podcast is this relatively new podcast called Meditative Story. It was started by one of the executive producers of TED. And I am just and, and, and actually it's a partnership with Ariana Huffington. And I'm just addicted to it. I love it. Cool. Where should people go to follow you online? <laughs> Um, I am very easy to find on all social media platforms, uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Rana. This has just been so interesting, and I learned a lot about emotional artificial intelligence and uh, your mission to humanize technology. It was uh, really interesting, and I hope our listeners uh, found it interesting as well, which I'm sure they did. And uh, we can't wait to see you in September 2020. I'm excited too. Thank you for having me. Of course. You're listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Oslo Business Forum and myself. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with experts from around the world. If you like this podcast and wondering how you can support us, please take a second to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts because it really helps. And if you have a friend or colleague that you think might appreciate it, every single share counts. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.